Well, welcome everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Today is a super exciting day. I mean, there's someone who we're, we're speaking to today who I think many people, um, if not all people uh, on the podcast, will identify with, will also maybe a little bit of fanboy and fangirl overall. Also, that's Jeff Bullock. Jeff Bullock of the Hillsong fame, uh, but you wrote many of those huge songs at Hillsong. The Power of Your Love, Refresh My Heart, Have Faith in God, You've Rescued Me, I'll Never Be the Same Again, This Kingdom, you know, all those songs alongside Darlene Check. So there was um, a lot that, that we all relate with, a lot of these songs we sung along with, particularly those who we're in Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches across the space. So I know, T, you're, you're just as excited as I am. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really great, you know, really excited to to talk with Jeff and to hear his story. You know, there was once upon a time where that music was constantly in the CD player. I mean, that shows how long ago it was, right? There was It was on CD, um, but it was definitely a big part of, of, of my Pentecostal experience, definitely, was, was listening to Jeff Bullock's music. And I can remember in being in the same room as Jeff once in about as a youth alive conference up in the gold coast, we're staying at the Ramada and I can remember you were in the room and it's like, Oh gosh, that's him. And I didn't want to come up and say g'day because I wanted to be all cool, you know, and I didn't want to bombard you with, you know, fanboying, but that there it was g'day and welcome to, I was the teenage fundamentalist. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Jeff, I guess where we want to start is the beginning for, for you. I mean, how did you become involved in, Christianity and ultimately Pentecostalism. What's the story of that? It probably goes back to when I was 15 or 16. I was going to an Anglican church in Kalara, St. Martin's Kalara, which is in New South Wales, in Sydney. And I went for confirmation classes and uh, everybody else was there just for the, for, the, for the social thing. But I got very serious about it. And I remember one day walking away from church and sort of having a, a God experience where I sort of felt like there was some sort of calling, which probably lasted five minutes until I got to the party. And then at, when I was, uh, how old was I? I was 23. This was 1978. And a um, very, very close friend of mine had a really strong Christian mother. We, we called ourselves effects artists, so we'd smoke dope together, we'd get drunk together. He went through a relationship breakdown and really, I, I actually went to his mother and said, I'm really worried about your son. Highly uncool, but that's how worried I was. And then one day I went over, it must have been a Monday after the Sunday, and he was sitting in, in the television room with his sunglasses on. And he said, I've just got born again. And he was wearing his sunglasses because he was embarrassed. But the change in him was just so dramatic. He'd, he'd take me to the pub and get me a bit drunk and then preach hellfire and brimstone. So I went along to what was a, a Christian Life Centre Sydney meeting uh, in November 78 and Frank Houston was preaching and I went with my uh, girlfriend at the time and we ended up going up on the altar call. That was the beginning. Beginning. I, I remember I had no idea of theology. I just had this profound sense of guilt and the sense that I was on the wrong side and the whole emotion of the thing, the music and the, the wailing and the speaking in tongues. And I was such a spiritual milkshake, it sort of made sense. And so that sort of started it. I started becoming part of the music team at Life Centre Sydney uh, after I married Janine, my first wife. Yes, that's sort of how it started. I played bass and then I played piano with the band. And the music director was a guy called Trevor King. And I became friends with Brian Houston and travelled with Frank. Uh, I've always played piano, always been an improvised 
improviser, but I then got very interested in guitar and then decided to play bass and ended up changing over to keyboards and toured with a band called Arnhem in the mid-70s. Uh, and then I left. The, I was working at the ABC at the time as, as a uh, operations officer, left that to go full-time with Arnhem, and then went back to the job, back to my job at the ABC and became a cameraman there. So you went to Hillsong. Well, sorry, it was Hills Christian Life Centre at the time, and you joined the band. No, I'll take you back. I went to Christian Life Centre Sydney, which was started in 1977 with Frank. And uh, Brian Houston and I became quite good friends, and he, he had this plan where he'd find AOG churches that were in need of rebuilding, I suppose. And so he'd go in and, and preach on a Sunday morning and I'd go along and play piano for him. And so we started at Liverpool and then he went off and and then he appointed a, a pastor there. And then he went and established the Central Coast Church. And then he approached me about how about we do a church at Borkhamhills, Hills. And that's how it started. So basically Brian and I and a small group of people from the area, pioneered the church in 1983. So you were involved in the in the very early days of Hillsong. It wasn't even, it's not like, you know, you came along later on. You were there at the very Yeah, I was there right from the beginning. I was part of the team. Uh, we met together and planned it, and then I organised musicians and PA and everything, and we, we did the first service sometime, I think, around August, September, 83. And... From then on, I just uh, I was still working at the ABC doing uh, shift work, and I ended up having my own crew. And I was camera one, and I had three other cameramen, and did lots of shows. And because I'd worked by then, I'd been working at the ABC for nine years, so I had a lot of production experience working in the studios. I decided to quit and get a, a job selling books so that I could be more committed to the church and be available every Sunday. Yes, and so I went full time. In 1987, um, as the music pastor, started the uh, the Hillsong Conference. Uh, one of the content, most contested things with the hierarchy of Hillsong is I, I actually made up the name Hillsong, but they, they, they dispute that as they would dispute most things that I remember. But I started the Hillsong Conference uh, with, with a team and then started writing uh, what we called choruses in those days. And then we recorded seven albums, and uh, I left in 1995. And there's a lot of stuff in between there, I guess, which we, we want to chat to you about, Jeff, and, but also about your experiences. I mean, you're, you're talking there about back in what, 1987, you were appointed as worship, the first worship pastor of, of Hillsong alongside Brian Houston as the senior pastor. What did that look like? like what was your role as worship pastor? Basically, we're pastoring musicians. And I took it terribly serious. I, at that stage, I was a very serious, sincere Christian. My love of music and thirst for music and creativity sort of deserted me uh, when I had this, uh, in inverted commas, born-again experience. And I just wanted to be, I suppose it goes back to that story I told you outside St. Martin's Church in Calara when I was 15. And so I felt more of a pastor than anything else, but I, I would organise the music for every for Sunday services, look after musicians, um, look after vocalists, form a choir and do the happy clappy thing every Sunday. So how, how did you see what was going on with music in other churches? Because even then, before uh, we can remember, B and I were involved in the AOG at the time. There was no Hillsong. Hillsong was a conference. Hillsong wasn't yeah, a church. Yeah, that's right. 
Hills Christian Life Center. It was Hills Christian Life Center when I left. So you guys were a a church that was taking music very seriously. Do you think you were on par with the way the other AOG churches were doing it, or were you taking the lead somehow? I suppose we were sort of the re- the rebellious late twenty somethings, and I I sort of always had a cultural cringe with the music that we were playing and the fundamentalism and the whole demographic of the place. And so I became very aware that if if we wanted to attract people to the church, there's no point playing AOG, Happy Clappies and God's Not Dead, He, He Is Alive and all those polkas that we used to play. And so I, I said to Brian quite in the early days, if we really want to be successful, we have to appeal to the demographic of the area. And so I said, we really need to sound like the band that played at Castle Hill, Hill RSL on a Saturday night so that when people arrive in church, they don't have to go through this cultural metamorphosis to understand what the hell we're on about. And so we took a rock, far rockier approach to the AOG's songs much more drum, guitar-based, piano-driven. I suggested that instead of the pastors lead the music and stand up there and wave their arms around like trained monkeys, no offence to monkeys, that perhaps we should get one of the vocalists to do it because that's what the demographic expects, you know, that the, you've got a band on stage and they're, they're singing up-tempo songs. W- w- why is this guy in a th- grey three-piece suit with a thin leather, pink leather tie be doing it? That sort of, there was this slow change and then of course I started writing songs and the albums came out and especially through the Hillsong Conference and also at the same time New South Wales Youth Alive we I suppose started to change what the genre of praise and worship in Australia and then of course the church took off and it it was bizarre it just took off a lot of people a lot of pastors were obviously thinking well why is it taking off and they looked at the music and the conference helped that, and also the Youth Alive rallies helped that. I had a lot more freedom culturally, not full freedom, to to try and create this contemporary thing, contemporary praise and worship thing. It was bizarre. We did um, two studio albums, one in 1988 called Spirit and Truth, then Show Your Glory in 1989, and then in 19... 19- one, two, three, four. 1992, we'd moved from this warehouse into the what was called the Hills Centre. It was a big performing arts centre at Castle Hill. And we recorded the first live album called The Power of Your Love. And that's when it just went silly. And then we did four live albums. And the fifth live album was recorded about three days after I left. And that was a shout to the Lord. And that sold more than a million copies in the States. And then it just, it just went silly. But by that stage, I, I was gone. I think I had both those albums actually, both those albums on CD, and I was I was youth pastoring I think for the second one, and they were just on rotation not only in the car but they were on rotation in the church as well. So they were making a huge impact. As a matter of fact, I can remember there was CCC, there was Christian City Church. They were doing albums, and there was you guys. And it wasn't it wasn't a matter of who was better. It was a matter of both. This was music was coming to us from both these churches from Sydney. Matter of fact, I can remember there was that song. Do you remember that one, B? And someone used to say, "This is a song from Sydney that our church sings." Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, Jeff, you, you're being quite humble, and you're going, "Yeah, oh, we wrote a few songs, we chucked them together, and we sang them." I mean, the songs that you wrote and were part of changed the face 
of really, particularly around the charismatic scene, the Pentecostal scene, it completely changed the face of how people did praise and worship. It it really did. It revolutionised the church. You're right, it did bring people in. I mean, I came into the church in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was very much something. My, I, I came in through a Christian city church, so there's a lot of Christian city songs, but then into other Pentecostal churches, it was very much the stuff that you were writing. It was incredibly influential. It was bizarre it, it, because I had a huge job and my wife and I just kept having babies. You know, we had five kids in 10, in, in ten years uh, and we were as poor as church mice. Uh, you know, working 60-hour weeks. So I had all the administration and, and an enormous amount of pressure. But I've always written songs. So I felt this urge to, to keep on writing, which I, just, which I did. And it, it was quite bizarre because a lot of people, they, they do their first album and, it's, and they do all their best songs. And then the second album comes along and they've got to somehow improve on that. And somehow our team, uh, myself, Russell Frager, Darlene Check, we, we managed in our writing to keep going, that each album I thought and each group of songs were better than the first. But it was a, look, to be perfectly honest, a hellish experience, but somehow the songs kept coming and it, it was just, it became strange. Why was it a hellish experience? What happened there? It was a very difficult place to work for. It was the leadership style was very aggressive, domineering. Um, you could say almost bullying. And we've got to remember that I'm talking about 25 years ago. So these are memories that are 25 years old, 30 years old, 30 to 25 years old. I'm not a great confrontationalist. I'm somebody that is a bridge builder. I'm a gentle soul. I think that probably would frustrated people that I I found it difficult to be a company man. I, I, I preferred to look after people rather than to make them look after the church or look after our vision. Uh, I thought the church was all about people uh, rather than being all about the church. And I was very, very close to Brian. We'd go on holidays together. But uh, at times he was, uh, he was very difficult. In the end, that conflict between somebody who was my, one of my very best friends and then somebody who could be so cruel just got too much for me. That period between when, you know, you became the worship pastor to when you did leave, are there some experiences in that time that do stand out to you, ones that are real markers in your journey for, for the good things but also the not-so-good things? Are there any of those that come to mind? There are two that come to mind that, that, are, that are personal for me because the music was going into so many different Christian cultures. Uh, so it wasn't just AOG, but because I wrote a hymn-like, gentle-type ballad, as well as all the rocky things that we, we did just to make the crowd excited, I would go to lots of different Christian cultures. And so I'd, I'd go somewhere and feel the weight of having to be uh, Jeff Bullock from Hills Christian Life Centre and, and having to toe the company line. I'd go to other churches and it was freer. It was more open. That it there wasn't this terribly strong ag agenda. And then I'd come back and I'd often I'd find it difficult to fall, fit back into it. I went to um, Europe, to Holland in um, early 90s, maybe let's say 1992. And 
went to the Dutch, the European uh, model of Christianity. And I remember this huge conference and uh, there's this guy standing around smoking a cigarette, which, of course, to a Pentecostal was like, Ugh. he stubbed the cigarette out and then he got up to the microphone and he was the guy leading this. He was in charge of the whole conference. And I found this just this broadening where people were interested in the arts, they, that you weren't using, that the music was still an art. It, uh, this, I'm going to use a hard word, but it wasn't a propaganda tool. It, it, it was art and it was appreciated as art. And I felt liberated that when I shared my songs, people appreciated them artistically, musically, and that I didn't have this responsibility to, to get the crowd to do something, to bring in, as we used to say, you know, you know let the musicians bring in the anointing of the, of the Holy Spirit, which, I mean, when you think about that theologically, is the most ridiculous thing you could ever think of. And I came back and tried to resign. I got, ooh, I got heavied. And so I cut my ponytail off and bought a three-piece suit for the next three years, uh, 93, 94, 95, endeavoured to try and be, as they would say, why can't you just be the man of God that God wants you to be, which means this is the image of the church. That was a really hard time. That was, was a really hard time because basically I was destroying myself. Instead of being me, I was the me that they needed me to be. And if I was being me, it didn't work. The second thing that happened to me, I was um, late 94, I was about to preach at a church in Perth and by that stage I'd just given up trying to prepare sermons and I'd just get up and tell stories. I'm sitting in the front seat of the church and all of a sudden I had this revelation that I knew Bilbo Baggins better than Jesus. I knew Biggles better than Jesus. That Jesus was was a book, chapter and verse. It was isolated sayings taken out of context. There wasn't a narrative. It was just favourite verses. And what I knew of him was only what I was taught to believe. It wasn't like trying to understand who he was. And that was the huge change. That's when I tried to discover who the man was. Rather than being biblical, I wanted to get a sense of him. That was, the, that was a huge change. And that led, led me to eventually realise that there is a gap between the culture of Christianity and the perceived person of whoever Jesus Christ was. I guess just before we do get to, like, it, I think you're sort of leaning on to where you did take off and and leave that relationship you had with Brian and, and the church, I would just want to go back to what you said about there was a strong agenda um, and you seem to be sort of leaning on the fact that, you know, you, you said there was, as opposed to used a strong word, propaganda. That strong agenda, what was that strong agenda? What was your take on that? Well, the strong agenda... And Brian would say it himself. We're unashamedly ourselves, and if you don't like it, well, there's plenty of churches down the road. You know, go 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 down the road and and be bored. And it got to the point where if anybody disagreed, we would counsel them and and uh, counsel them to to get their act together. You know, um, if you want to be part of us, then you've got to be fully part of what the vision of the ch- of the church was. And it was, it was a very domineering to the point where. Almost your your whole personality had to be framed around the vision of what the church was doing. And I, I ended up in that time after coming back from Holland, uh, where I really just decided to knuckle down. I, you know, as I said, I lost myself. 
And I saw a whole lot of other my best some of my best friends do the same. The, the, the vibrancy and the individuality was sort of knocked out of them, and they became images of what was needed to be done to make Hills Christian Life Centre work. So do you think that was something that you woke up to and it was always there, or was there a change in the culture of the church that, that brought this about? There was a huge change in the culture of the church when um, Brian and Bobby went to, to California uh, in the late 80s. And I think I've said this in print that, you know, they, they, they left looking like AOG pastors and they came back wearing the loudest shirts and looking very Hollywood and they met people in the prosperity doctrine they were introduced to the the culture of televangelists and American fundamentalism. That was a huge change. That they left being uh, what we were, and they came back. And fundamentally, the greatest change that happened at Hills Christian Life Center. And that's where it became difficult, because I've always had this sort of rebellious side of me, or an individual side of me. I I don't like being told what to do. I often like to to plough my own path, go my own way. And it, it, it became suddenly I, we had to knuckle down and be followers of this rather than having, you know, a lovely corporate mass of people. And so did you, as, as friends with Brian and, and Bobby, did you bring that up with them? Did you talk to them about, hey, this is the change that I'm seeing or did you just go with the flow? I just went with the flow. One of my faults um, is I'm, I'm not very good at confrontation unless you really back me into a corner. But because of Brian's sort of physical presence and his ability to push you somewhere where you don't want to go, but frame it in terms of this is where God wants us to go, that you've you're sort of now got the problem. Am I fighting God or am I fighting myself? Um, I, am I fighting what God would want for me, or am I losing myself? And I always thought, well, it must be God. I mean, how would I, How could I be right? And so there wasn't much room for dissent, let's put it that way. And what about, what about your peers? You know, you talk about some of these other people. Were you chatting with them? Were they feeling the same way, or is everyone just going with the flow? Look, I think privately we were surprised, but at the same time everything we did suddenly yeah, just sort of took off. And so we just presumed that it must be God. And therefore, you know, who who can argue? But this is a trouble where you, you've got this theology where who God is and what he says is dictated by the leadership uh, to the point where eventually you, you don't really have faith in God. You have faith in the God of your leadership. And that's sort of where I got so you mentioned earlier on that, you know, there was Frank Houston was around, Brian Houston was around. Had Frank by this time sort of faded into the background a bit more? Or where was Frank in the mix during all this? I mean, Brian he eclipsed his father probably in the early 90s. I can still remember Frank preaching um, at Hillsong. That's the last time I saw him preach, probably the last time I saw him actually. I really struggled with, with what he was saying and the culture of what he was saying and this old school AOG and this foot stamping, lots of miracles, lots of exaggerations. And it was an anathema to me because culturally we, we, weren't, we weren't really even AOG by that stage. So Frank was still there, but Brian, Brian by that stage was in the throes of becoming the senior pastor of both Waterloo and 
where we were at Castle Hill. So that's when we Brian started to move into the city city church and then the Shire. Jeff, I would argue, at least from my experience being in Australia and being in that sort of Pentecostal scene in that time, I think we saw through Maranatha and some of these other Christian, you know, worship marketing teams that would put out these people, and there were some names. But really, would you say that you were one of the first, if not the first, contemporary Christian worship megastars? Well, that's high praise. Uh, I, I wouldn't like to admit it, but uh, let's put it another way. It, this concept of contemporizing Christianity and, and, and getting out of the, the Pentecostal cultural clique where we were so isolated from the rest of the world. I suppose I was among the first. I mean, there was Chris Folson uh, at Triple C, and then there was um, I'm trying to, Tom Rawls and David and Rosanna Palmer from Victoria. But I think the fortunate thing for me with my production experience from the ABC, the Hillsong Conference, was so hugely influential. Yes, that I suppose I, I, was, I was certainly one of the people at the front of it. So, so how did that happen? And, and I know you've hinted at it, but but really, in your in your understanding, how did you go from leading worship in church and moving around from church to church, leading people in worship, to all of a sudden selling all these albums and becoming this name? Where, as I said to you, I didn't even want to approach you at the User Live conference because you were just larger than life. Yeah, yeah, I still walk on water. Perfectly <laughs> <laughs> honest, I've, I've, I have this joke with I told a friend of mine here. Uh, I said, I have a problem when I have a bath. I either stand, or, stand on it or I turn it into wine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, because, again, going back to the production experience, we were writing so many songs, so we decided to do the Hillsong Update Scheme, and so we put out three updates a year. They came with a cassette with backing tracks and demo tapes and then the music, and we got a mailing list, and they paid X a year. And so it was going out to hundreds and hundreds of churches. And then at the end of the year, or actually halfway, well, say March, the following year, we would do the live album, which we would then debut at the Hillsong Conference. So we had a whole plan of how do we get the songs out? How, what's the easiest way of doing it? You know, and I had a wonderful team to do it, but I suppose the genius of it, if it wasn't just writing songs and doing it on a Sunday. It was a whole system. And the, and the, the weird thing, the first time I went to the States, which was 1993, uh, I'm sitting in a very big church in Seattle, and the band gets up and they launch into basically a concert of my songs. And I've never been there. It was just, and I remember going to New Zealand, the same thing happening. I you know, went into a friend's church and said, I've got a new song to teach you. And I launched into the power of your love and they all sang along. I suppose I can think of all the techniques that we did and all the merchandising. I'm trying to, that's not the right the word, the production management of, of publishing that I suppose we invented something like that. But in the end, I just just was caught up in the whirlwind to a point where, you know, I couldn't walk through the shopping centre without people coming up to me that suddenly I became famous. And I, I was a very sincere Christian. I wasn't trying to do it to become famous. I, I was just trying to do it because I thought this, this, was, this was God's work. And let me, let me say, every time I say God, can, we have to put it in inverted commas because I'm, I've come a long way from there. And I, I can definitely say that the, my spiritual journey at Hills Christian Life Centre was not a particularly whole, a whole experience. You know, I've got to be, you know, I, just, I just want to be terribly careful 
not to not to slur what were at the time innocent times. We were all in our thirties. Uh, we'd never done it before, and in the end, it seemed like the whole thing was controlling us. Uh, yeah, I, and I guess I wanted to pick up on that as well. Was from what you've described, there was very much a strategy. There was um, definitely a building of that brand. I mean, that that was absolutely there. What do you think was behind it? Do you think, I mean, you've, you've said then that um, you seem to be swept up by what was happening, but did you think that it, the whole strategy, the whole agenda was to introduce people to Jesus and to get them to convert to Christianity? Or was there something else? I think I chose to believe that, that we were trying to get people in inverted commas saved and you know in inverted commas baptized in the holy spirit and and trying to improve improve people's lives but in the end it was also that the the vision of the local church as a separate as a side to the individual that the local church suddenly this idea of the church being a force of good and so towards the end i really struggled with it because Increasingly, it was an, un, an unhealthy fit for me. In the end, I was I was to bring things under budget. The amount of money that we we would beg, borrow, and steal anything to get the get anything happening that we were so under budgeted, and yet we were bringing in millions. And that all changed after I left. And I don't know what happened after I left because when I left, they left me. So uh, after nineteen ninety five, yeah, that, that's a different story altogether. Some of that unpacking that either you were doing or was being done for you as you led up to leaving, how was that playing out for you? I, 1995 dawned and we had a uh, pastor's retreat. You know, we, Initially we went camping, which is very much unlike me. But in 1995 we went to the Ritz-Carlton uh, the Ritz at Double Bay. I remember sitting down with them and I said to them, look, you're my family, you know, you're closer to me than my family. But then I said, we can't keep going this way. We're running out of petrol. We're running out of fuel. We, we, we just can't keep going. We had four albums on the boil. You know, there was five services a Sunday, an under-resourced, under-budgeted team. It, it became, I became, how do I put it? I wasn't managing it myself. I was being managed, and in the end, I had no, I had no say in it, and I found myself being forced to fire musicians. I remember the last album we recorded, and we'd always have the, you know, the choir on the left-hand side of the stage, and uh, Brian walked in, and you know, we'd been working for weeks and weeks, rehearsing and getting the harmonies and getting the band right. It was a good band, and a good choir. And he came up to me and he said, why are all the ugly girls at the front? Why are the ugly girls? So we had to put all the mums at the back and brought all the young Bible college students to the front. And if you look at the, the video of Friends in High Places, I think it was called, it was a, the prettiest choir in the world. But things like that left a very, very sour taste in my mouth. I remember another time, the Christmas of 94, uh, we would do this huge Christmas spectacular in the park. Again, you know, ridiculously huge setup. And I don't know, we had this wonderful production manager, a guy called Cameron Wade, who was a genius. Uh, and he organised to have Santa Claus drop out of a helicopter. He, he managed to get fireworks by somehow conning somebody uh, to have their name on the program. We'd have 10,000 people in a park. 
and we do this amazing thing. And then, of course, come Christmas Day, Brian would expect the same thing to happen. Well, all my musicians went on holidays. The band that I had, the only thing that they could play was the, was the music we'd written. We highly rehearsed. We didn't have a second repertoire. And I can't suddenly get to church musicians to start, re- start reading charts. Brian came down and he blew up in front of me and in front of the whole band, and uh, it was very humiliating. And then guess who was preaching that night? Me. So this is where it was just getting too much for me. And I'm trying to work out the difference between the vision of the church and what I saw as my faith. The two started growing apart. So up to that point, he'd been your friend? When when did you stop being friends with him? Well, we just went, believe it or not, we went on holidays after that and, you know, shrugged my shoulders and off we went. Because that was Brian, you know. It, it was Brian's way or the highway. You, if you, He used to say to me, if you don't do it, I'll get somebody else who can who or who will. He, yeah, look, there's much I can say. And I'm, I must admit, I am pussyfooting around a bit. You were saying that, you know, you were under-budgeted despite the millions coming in to that church. One could argue that a lot of the millions coming into the church came through the music that was out there, the music that was charting, that there was people were buying. and The, the last four albums, Power of Your Love, Stones Been Rolled Away, Friends in High Places, uh, and people just like us, they've all they've all gone platinum in in Australia. They've sold, they've gone gold all over the world. And then we, I left before Shout to the Lord, but it still had it still the, it was the music team that I'd led and got to that point. Uh, as I said, it went platinum in the, in America, double gold because it was two different record companies. So where was the money going then? If it wasn't going back into the surely the music department can be budgeted out of the income was coming. But no, the income went straight into the church. And I was on a just a very small wage. I had five kids and my wife, uh, their mother, you know, had to had to work full time. And, you know, the budgets for the for the live albums, you know, I think the budget ran, ran, was about 15 grand for, for an album. And I mean, I've been in the music industry since my late teens. I'm, I was working in, in broadcasting for 10 years. It, it, I, knew what I, was, I knew what I was talking about and they had no idea. And it was just frustrating that when they negotiated their contract with Integrity Music, I love that name, Integrity Music, I, wasn't, I was not allowed to be part of the, the discussions. And they got the the assistant, the associate pastor, to do it, and he hadn't he he didn't know anything about copyright. He didn't know anything about publishing. I was just a sideliner, except that they were selling me. So so let's be clear then. You weren't living the high life in the midst of these albums and everything. You weren't you weren't rocking and rolling and mo- moving into I don't know whatever suburbs you you know you move into in Sydney. It just wasn't happening for you. Gosh no no. Janine, my wife at the time, she was dressed by hand-me-downs from my, my sister, who was uh, a, a corporate person. It was only in the last year, maybe. Let's put it another way. I, we, were, we, we weren't wealthy. My, I was, we were supported by my parents, who were wealthy. My wage was a very small wage, and I didn't get in, any performance royalties. And my songwriting royalties only started to dribble in towards the end because it's quite a lag. Uh, no, there's no way I could say that, that I was reaping any of it. I never have, to be perfectly honest. I've never, the only time I flew, flew business classes because somebody paid for it. You know, and there's been some, some publishing deals that went awry and mistakes that were made because we were all young doing it for the first time. But, you know, I just, certainly was never a high flyer, never. 
So I, I guess there's been a lot of info that, that bounces around on the internet, as it does, saying that the royalties were stacked in the favour of, of Hillsong. What actually happened there? Was it a fair arrangement? I got my royalties. I, I got what was legally entitled to me because I was a songwriter. But I've only just started to get performance royalties 25 years later because somebody must have uh, taken them to court. All the musicians that played on the albums weren't paid. The only people that were paid was the production manager, Cameron, and uh, Russell Fragar. But Russell Fragar was paid from my my travelling. So when I went and travelled, whatever I received from the churches, that went into Russell's wage. Yes, yes, and we're, music's going around the world, isn't it? B and I both left uh, the AOG in, in around the same time as you did. When I left, I'd heard Jeff Bullock has left. Jeff Bullock has left uh, the AOG. Jeff Bullock has left Hills. I don't think Hillsong existed as a church. And when you did, though, it was shrouded in secrecy. It was all whispers and, and he's gone. And, and I think I'd heard that, oh, Jeff's not going to tell anything for a number of years. He's made a commitment not to, uh, you know, this is all the stuff that I'd heard. And so we never knew what the story was. So I want to give you an opportunity, and I'm sure that you've documented in other places and other interviews, but I want to give you an opportunity. What happened? Why did why did you leave? What was the, the, the process? I just remember one meeting where suddenly it wasn't just Brian berating me. It was the meeting berating me. And I just sort of felt, look, you know, I'm doing my best here and the best is pretty good. I took, I think I took a week off and tried to work out what on earth am I going to do? I came back and sit in my office and I read some scripture about the role of elders in a church and what, what who they should be like. And I just suddenly realised this is not what this is not what the elder of our church. This is not we are not scriptural. What we are doing is not is not the model of leadership in the New Testament. And remembering, I was a very biblical guy at the time, and I was also having this discovery of the person of Jesus, and and suddenly realising I've got two situations here that are different. I realised that I had a scriptural reason, but I was also burnt out. I, I was, by that stage, there were real cracks in my marriage, uh, bad cracks in my marriage. I said to everybody, I, I have left because I believe God has told me to leave. And that's, what, that's the reason I gave Brian. That's the reason I gave the eldership. That's the reason I gave my friends. I believe God has called me out. Now, Looking back now, that's just a coward's way out. I, I, I actually should have lost my temper uh, in the eldership and basically told Brian off and told him what I really thought, which was, you just I'm sick of being treated like an idiot. I'm the goose that's laying the golden eggs, and, 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 and yet you're, I'm being so, so put down. and not, I wouldn't say underappreciated because that sounds a matter of ego, but you have all the power. I just have to just keep doing what I'm doing. And, and even with all my production experience from being in broadcasting since I was 19, that accounts for nothing. That you think the success of the church is because of the anointing on the church, whatever that is. And so now looking back now, and I've never said this publicly, I just got sick of it. I just, I just couldn't go back. I got sick of getting up at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning and turning up to a church that had to bump in all their equipment to a public hall. It had to come out of our offices, into a truck, 40 channels of front of house mixer, 36 channels of onstage mixer, three cameras, video screens, 50-piece choir, and it had to sound every Sunday at 8.30 in the morning. It had to sound like the album, Rain, Hail or Shine. 
we'd then have this meeting on a Tuesday and they'd say, oh, the worship wasn't very good on Sunday morning. And I'd say, well, what's that got to do with me? You know, I, you know, the congregation was quiet. It was raining. People had had an argument. Maybe they'd had a curry the night before. Well, I don't know, but, but they made it my responsibility. It's like, what happened? And I said, well, I've got a bunch of amateurs, some very talented people, but we're actually doing a miracle every Sunday. They hated me saying that because they said, no, it's not a miracle. It's, you know, and of course I knew it was a miracle. If you did the ABC to, to do a production like that, you'd you'd set it up the day before. In fact, it, anything like we were doing, you'd set it up the day before or you'd set it up all day and do the concert at night. We somehow managed to get the gear there and have full rehearsals at 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, rain, hail or shine, and then we'd do five services a day. The irony of what you're saying, though, is, you know, hey, the worship wasn't very... I mean, it was Pentecostalism. Where was God? Where was the Holy Spirit? No? Uh, no, it's a video. It's not a video. It's a podcast. You can you, you missed my cheeky grin. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. In the end, look, in the end, what we were doing was not spiritual anymore at all. Uh, my spiritual life was separate to what I was doing. It got to the point where I knew that what I was doing was just the same as when I played in pubs. You started with some big numbers and then you'd go up, 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 and then you'd do your love songs and the girls would swoon. And the whole thing you did it was for bar sales. If you got really good bar sales, you get invited back. I often would think, all I'm doing is just getting bar sales, except it just it's bums on seats. And I know that sounds cruel, and I, and, and I'm trying to be fair to all involved because I'm sure it'll get back to them. We were wet behind the ears. We were young. We're all in our 30s. Uh, Brian had only just turned 40. And there's a whole lot of wisdom, I would hope, that's happened since then. But when I left, it was just a great divorce. And you said, T, that all the rumours that came out, it was quite obvious that there was a deliberate plan to uh, destroy me. In fact, one of the lead major elders came to me many years later, just before Christmas, and we had morning tea. He brought he brought some gifts, and he said to me straight out, he said, Jeff, you do know we tried to destroy you, and I won't use the man's name. And I told this to Brian. Of course, he has a convenient memory loss. And I said, why? And he said, well, we thought you were going to bring the church down. And I said to him, using his name, surely you know me better than that. They spread rumours that I was having had an affair with uh, my secretary. I was a very moral person when I was there. When I remarried, that her second child was my child, uh, that there'd been an adulterous affair. This this went round the world. I had friends that went to, to uh, meet somebody that they knew from uh, Christian City Church, or C3 as they call it now, and they caught up with an old friend who happened to be Phil Pringle's previous secretary, and she said to this friend of mine, oh, you know, I heard that, you know, Jeff Bullock had all these affairs and, you know, that, 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 that his wife's second child is his. And this is, this is in America? Yeah, well, I've got to say, Jeff, that's exactly what I'd heard. I'd heard that yeah. Jeff had had this moral failing, you know, it was another one because it was, you know, it was the, the season for that, 80s and 90s. And I remember thinking, and, and I mean this, and I, I want to, I guess I want to stop for a minute and just say, and make sure you're okay, because I know I know this is heavy going. It's hard dredging it up. I, I, I get it, and I, I can feel it. Yeah, the, the, these people, when you're necessary, they can be wonderful. But when you're a threat, 
they're not one. It's not. It's not pleasant at all. And what I lost all my friends. The group of people that I said you are my family. You're, you know, you're closer than my family. There was absolute stone cold silence. And I went to the tenth Hill song. It wasn't the tenth anniversary. It was 1996. The tenth anniversary was 97. And Brian invited me, and I thought, oh look, I'll turn up just to you know to be a bridge builder. And you know, I didn't have anything against them. I, I just had to leave. You know, just left my employment. They stuck me in the front row next to Brian. They put a camera in my face. And there on the stage was all the people that I'd pastored for 12 years on the stage. And I just broke down in tears because there was my family. And they stuck a camera in my face. And so everybody knew I was there. And then Brian got up. And he said, this is the 10th annual Hillsong, 10th, not the 10th anniversary, but it's the 10th conference. He thanked everybody and didn't mention my name once. As we walked out, he said to me, are you staying for the second service? I said, why would I stay for the second service? Why would I, why would I go through that again? I said, you know, you didn't even mention my name. Why? And he said, oh, I wouldn't be fair on Russell or Darlene. Now, okay, if we want to get down to nitty gritty, can somebody tell me where Jesus is in this? I mean, can somebody tell me how blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where the, how can we go so far that an organisation, people in that organisation, leading that organisation, I, you know, I'm, I won't make apologies for Brian. Brian's Brian. And, but what about the others? And that's what's upset me the most. What about the others? That they just silently went along with it? And this is where, you know, actually dragging it up, I'm so far past it. But going back, it was agony. And the rumours that came out, the things, like you, I'd go online and uh, correct somebody. Would they go back and try undo the rumour? No. I, I heard of one situation where there's a group of musicians uh, in Tasmania in a recording studio with somebody who knew me really well. And he, he told everybody that story about Victoria's second child was mine. Uh, these people saying things, they all had my phone number. And there was absolutely, you know, the only person, believe it or not, who rang me was Frank Houston. Wow. And I met with Brian four or five times trying to build bridges and explain, look, this is why I left. You know, I always stuck by the God, God told me line because that's what I believed at the time. But now I'm 65. It's a long time ago. One of the themes in what we've talked about in the episodes, which you, you you wouldn't have heard yet, but we talk about leaving, and this is an arc that we're doing in the podcast at the moment about leaving what we call Great Big AOG, which was our assembly. One of the things about it is we've, we've, we've come to this again and again in that you can't leave. You can't choose to leave. There's no graceful exit from the organisation, whether that's our assembly, whether that's CCC in another story we heard, or even it's for you. The funny thing about it is only months after I left, the associate pastor, Michael Murphy, was sent to the Shire to take over uh, the church that now Scott Morrison goes to. I was told, this is how you leave. You don't leave, you're sent. Now, what did I do? I just resigned. Eventually, I remember saying, I probably said it to Brian, I said, I did you a favour because now you had the music team and what you want and they're doing what you want and it's actually taken off since I've gone. Your albums kept going, Hillsong kept growing bigger. That really, 
it showed that I built a I built a team and I, I was not really necessary anymore. But you, as you're right, you can't you can't leave to this day. You know Brian's last book. He, he won't even mention me by name. Yes, it's very painful and it was so ungodly. It was so unethical. But to suddenly say that this is this this is the body of Christ. If you want to believe in God, and if you want to take the Christian line, well, that's the, that's the person of Jesus. So that's that's the foundation of it. Who he was, what he did, how he treated people, the the feeling he left you with. Now you want to go into the New Testament or the Old Testament. Well, interesting, the New Testament. The minute we get into the Book of Acts, we're not really talking about Jesus anymore. We're talking about a church that we want to have an Acts church. Well. Uh, which is a very Pentecostal thing. We have a church like the Book of Acts. Well, how about having a, a church that's like like Jesus? Just look at the Bible. Jesus gets lost halfway through the Book of Acts. It's all about miracles. It's all about Paul. It bears no resemblance to the Jesus of the Gospels. And I've got to a point now where I'm not a Christian. I love the Jesus story. I wrote two books about a way of explaining how he was so countercultural that he he annoyed the political system. He annoyed the the Romans and you annoyed the the Jews, uh, and how amazing that story was. That's not Christianity. Uh, Christianity is, a, I call it nianity. It's Christless. So, Jeff, before we do, so we're really keen to chat to you about some of those differences of Jeff then, Jeff now, and the in between. That time, you know, you've it's ninety five or whenever it was. You, you've left. You've gone. Where are you at that time? What's happening for you in your life? I'm a mess. By that stage, it becomes perfectly clear that my marriage was over. And I was so damn busy that I didn't even notice it, which is tragic. I had five kids. Nicola was, what, 14 and Philippa was four. I left Hillsong and by January, I I had to leave the house. So all these rumours going out and I moved in with, uh, with a lovely friends who left about the same time that's where yes yeah, so there was a moral failure and i i ended up having an well it wasn't an affair really the the marriage ended because we ended it if you know what i mean which yeah it was a classic case of uh, adultery uh, which i've been very open about and we we married a year later well and then of course the industry was chasing me and so i went straight into doing a new album because I, I was prolific at that stage i just couldn't stop writing songs because I was just such an emotional mess. So 95, 96, 97 were very, very difficult days. And I was never given the chance to just to heal. I was just simply unaware of the, the, the amount of royalties that were coming into my publisher. We were doing it very hard. Emotionally, it was a mess. Uh, I was dealing with all these rumours, a new marriage, two two little girls that I'd, I'd caught up in the, in well, which is the situation, as tragic and sad as it was, and my five kids had just suddenly lost their father and uh, a very difficult relationship with their mother. And it took it took years, years and years, decades probably, to finally walk, to move on where the pain is behind me. Of course, when I talk about it, it's suddenly very real, but... It's behind me. My marriage to Victoria didn't last. We had an amicable divorce and I moved on to Scotland Island and I've now remarried. I've made peace with myself and I'm the happiest of, happiest I've ever been and I'm finally Jeff. 
in fact, it's a funny thing on the island. My nickname is Jesus, Jeff. And when they said that, I thought, oh, that's nice. They've noticed my faith. And they go, no, 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 no. Jeff, so often you you do something and we go, Jesus, Jeff, <laughs> what, what on earth are you up to? So yeah, I'm me now. I'm me. I'm not. I'm, and it's funny when you talk about my role as in Christian music because it's just, it's just, a, it's a different Jeff, and I can't relate to him. I can't relate to my songs. I, I can't relate to my relate to my lyrics. My gold records are in storage. And... Really interested to to pick up on that Jeff and and dig into that a bit deeper about the Jeff of the the 80s, the 90s. You know, you. you became a Christian in the late 70s. So it was a fairly significant period of, of your life. And not to mention, you know, your achievements during that time and being part of what was a, um, a formative movement in Australia. The Jeff then, the Jeff now, what are the key differences? Well, one was a Jeff who was always trying to be what people thought he should be and really disappointed when he just wanted to be himself. And a guy that I suppose sought out approval and validation, and that probably has a lot to deal deal with my relationship with my father, and also being a five foot six inch midget. You know, I went to a boys' school and very athletic, a bunch of jocks, and then here's this guy with four eyes, you know, great big goggles, and he was a gentle musician. So there's a whole lot of dynamic there. The Jeff now, um, I've got the best friends I've ever had the best male friends I've ever had. I'm me and I know, I, and I like me. I, I, I no longer have that terrible fear that is put in you, that you're not ever good enough. And like those woeful psychological trauma scriptures, you know, uh, it's no longer I live, it's Christ that lives in me. I buffet myself daily. Uh, I am crucified to Christ. Christ is crucified to me. I mean, uh, this total denial of self until it's, only Jesus that's within you, and yet you go into a church that doesn't even represent Jesus, and and a faith that's, that's corporate. It's all about singing and being happy and feeling something, but there's there's no like renewing of yourself, no growth of yourself. It's it's playing this part. My father used to say to me, "Oh, you've got rocks in your head, son. You've got your rocks in your set, your head. You're a bloody idiot." And so I, you know, I do something and I go, "Oh, you're a bloody idiot!" And I remember driving along Manavale Road, Sydney, and I just gone past the Baha'i Temple, and I said to myself, oh, "Bloody idiot, Jeff!" Something, and I said, "Hold on a second. And this I had this conversation with myself. Everybody loves you. You know, you're really popular. People love you. In fact, I said to myself, if you met yourself as, as a somebody else, you'd like them too." And I remember saying to myself. What's the problem with you? And that's when I suddenly thought, well, to be honest, if I think about it, I rather like myself. And I'm not on myself, but I sort of thought, closest person to me is me. Why am I assassinating myself with self-doubt? And that was, that was the biggest change of my life. I made peace with myself and there was no longer somebody looking over my shoulder criticising, which ended up being me. <laughs> Jeff, you said you're not a Christian anymore. Mm-hmm. And and yet, as you talk to us, you're quoting the Bible. Can you can you give us a sense of where you're at now in terms of the religion that you once claimed to believe or did believe? Okay, well, my life now looks like who I was before I was a Christian. I've had this amazing life where 
I've written all these songs, but in that I lost myself entirely. I continued to do concerts and seminars right up to 2014 until I couldn't sing the songs anymore because I to sing the, the songs was just a lack of personal integrity. You know, I, I, I really couldn't sing Jesus, God's righteousness revealed, the Son of Man, the Son of God, his kingdom comes. I, I can't sing that because I, I don't believe that anymore. But I'm fascinated by the Jesus story and so fascinated that that I would say I'm a follower of that story. It, it, that's transformational. But it doesn't have to be true. It, it can be beautiful fiction and still be inspiring. I mean, if you've seen The Colour Purple or any number of inspiring movies where you get incredibly moved and it changes your life. So that's how I see it now. It, to suddenly make make it so real that every every word cannot be challenged. Well, that actually flies in the face of everything that Jesus did. Yes, I'd say the most influential person in my life is the Jesus is the narrative of Jesus. But then again, I started studying all those narratives and all the different versions, and I realised that there were so many Jesus, there's hundreds of him, that how can you have one? Uh, and I got to a point also where I thought fundamentalism says this is who God is, and therefore, in saying this is who God is, is saying this is who God isn't. And we're so, suddenly so sure of who he is, which means we're so sure of who he isn't. Well, gosh, you only have to look at what fundamentalism has done in, in any faith, in any expression of faith, any pol- political movement, any musical movement. The minute you get fundamentalist, you become exclusive. The minute you become exclusive, you shrink. So, you know, I mean, it's a world you sort of kept playing in between 1995 and, and you said up until 2014 when you felt that it was disingenuous. For you to continue on. January 2015, I did a, a, a conference for the Brisbane Diocese of the Anglican Church, and I sang The Power of Your Love for the last time. Probably the most difficult conference I've ever done. Humiliating. And I realised that, I, that I, there was a divorce between me and my audience, and me and my songs. What's happened in that last six years for you? Is there a, a, a spirituality? Is there anything there or is it something that you just go, that was a time in my life I'm going to put behind me? I'm st- I think I'll always be a spiritual milkshake. My biggest role is just trying to be alive and be and to be good, to be whole, whole in my marriage, whole with my, my children who have been terribly damaged by their journey, shockingly damaged because they were just collateral. My ex-wife and my second wife, who also are collateral, I sort of do my best just to be a peacemaker and a bridge builder. How's your relationship with your kids now? Is it something that you've been able to restore and repair? Yes, yes. But it was very difficult for them because one minute dad was there and then the next minute dad wasn't. And then he remarries somebody that they'd known all their lives uh, and he raised her daughters that they knew all their lives. But he wasn't home. So I started again and, and... they were on their own and felt abandoned and uh, terribly painful for them. I think I did a whole, an awful lot of self-justifying or saying you don't know what it was like for me, where I just sort of shut up and tried to work out what it was like for them. And we've had, we're have we very close as a family, very tight, and they're very tight, the five of them. They're really, really close. You, you know, There's a messenger page where their partners, so the ten of them, talking to each other and, and plus me. 
most nights, all five of them are just nattering away and, and they've been the kids, as we call them. That's, that's been good. It's fraught with problems because they have, they have pain, the pain of the past and when you start recounting it, 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 suddenly you feel the emotions as if they happened yesterday and not 25 years ago. But, you know, things are good. You've had a, a bit of a torrid journey um, with Hills Christian Life Centre and became Hillsong. a Hillsong later. Mm. Um, how do you feel about them now? What does that word bring up for you when I, when I say Hillsong? How do you feel about it now? Well, I mean, you only have to read, you only have to Google Hillsong. Hillsong rumours, Hillsong bad. Like any institution that becomes divorced from re- reality and you can look at Labor Party, Liberal Party, Greens, anybody that gets rock groups, anybody that gets lost in their own culture until the culture of what you're doing is is divorced from the reality of the real world, you can you can become unaccountable. The whole Carl Lentz drama, the huge celebrity cult in America in particular with all the, the golden people, and now... You know, Brian has been charged uh, with concealing his father's pedophilia. Possibly, you know, I won't go that far. And so Brian's going to get a court. He quite possibly uh, will face a conviction. I just remember this funny little church back in Borkham Hills Public School on Windsor Road. And the innocence, we were in our 20s, the innocence and the sheer joy of being out, out of the big church and it was just a bunch of young marrieds and their little kids and playing music and having a lot of fun. And it was spiritual to where it's got now, where it's a corporation with lawyers and spin doctors and media departments. And I'm just sad that when you look at Hillsong, and I don't just mean Hillsong, I think when you look at a lot of very muscular Christianity, uh, I think the, the very literalist viewpoint of the Sydney Anglicans, Anglican Diocese in Sydney, very literalist, the very Holy Spirit people uh, who are very much into the prophetic, into signs and wonders and all sorts of manifestations of of people shaking and rolling in the ground and all that type of thing. Uh, I just simply go back to what I discovered when I really started to look deeply into who I was meant to be believing. And so, yeah, what do I think of Hillsong? Uh I despair for what it was, and I despair for what may may be. You know, and I'm sad. I'm I. I miss those people, and I miss the, the laughter, and I'm very saddened that there wasn't one defender for me or the myriad of other people that were excommunicated. If you were to give a piece of advice. Brian is in front of you. Brian Houston is in front of you. You give some advice. You you were there. You were one of the the core founders of this movement, this hugely global influential movement. What would your word of advice be? Oh, dear. If he was prepared to listen, I'd say, listen, Brian, if you truly believe that you are preaching the gospel, then you're going to have to go back to the Gospels and acquaint yourself with the person of of Jesus and model that 
Yeah, I'd say the message is not the church. The church is not the message. Uh, and you've got this thing where the church is the the, the message, the hope. Their science says, you know, Jesus is the hope of humanity. But their idea is that Jesus is the hope of humanity, which is modelled by the church. So in, in other words, you can't have both, Brian. You, you can either get to understand the spirit of this thing or you can you can go the corporate road. Well, I often think of Brian, if he suddenly had the spiritual epiphany that I had, how, how on earth would he turn it around? It took me 25 years. I, I left Hillsong, but it t- took 25 years for Hillsong to get out of me. It, it, it's been a long journey. and, it, and it, My wife, Tina, says, you know, the, the best thing you ever did uh, was confront your spirituality, you know, it was, it's not about the music and the success of it. it it's a, it's about finally becoming whole. I suppose just I'd have to say to Brian, hey, where are you? What's happened to you? Where, where's the where's the young twenty five year old that I knew? You know, where did he go? Who, who who are you now? How can you speak of Jesus and that yet do what you do what you've done? And Jeff, what would you say? If a young 25-year-old came to you now and said, hey, there's this church, there's this place called Hillsong, and, and it's just wonderful. The music's great. They're saying positive messages. I'm thinking of joining. What would you say to that person? You can get equally inspired by going and hearing Beethoven's Ninth with a huge choir or playing your favourite song or remembering your first kiss uh, or watching your best movie or being falling in love i would say look if you want to go if you want to go to be entertained great but be aware that there's a difference between how you feel and who you are and be careful that you're you're not going to something because it looks like the answer and they say it is the answer but to be part of the answer you're going to have to change I'd probably say, well, if I can help, let me know. You know, talking to you, the story is so similar. Mm. You know, it happened for you on a macro level. It happened for us on a on a on a smaller scale. But nevertheless, the story is very similar. Mm. As I said, it's difficult to leave. There, in fact, there is no way to leave. I can tell you when you when you hear the episodes where we talk about leaving Great Big AOG, I actually said to B, all I did was leave. That, that was actually my sin. My sin was just to leave. And so too, B had things said to him that, you know, you're just going to become less than who you could possibly be if you leave us, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's fundamentalism. That's not Hillsong. That's not the Australian Christian churches or the AOG. That's fundamentalism. There's no life outside of us. That's right. I've been really um, moved by what you said today. And I've been, uh, resonating very much and I know a lot of people listening will be resonating as well so thank you so much for being a part of this well I hope I made sense <laughs> in my jumbled mess of trying to uh, unpack uh, and tiptoe through the tulips for a while until I decided I might as well put my wellies on and start stamping <laughs> and we do appreciate that Jeff and you know we appreciate that you you had to revisit some really shit times in your life to talk about what you you talked about today. And and I guess that is something that we have done through our podcast, but we weren't we weren't Jeff Bullock. You know, we weren't someone who had the 
the many, many eyes on them and the many accusations thrown at them really publicly. So just want to acknowledge the bravery that you've shown today. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I am not that Jeff Bullock anymore. And I'm, But I must say that I still have a royalty stream. And for that, uh, I am incredibly grateful to the people that uh, worked with me, that suffered alongside me, that, that, that suffered because of my behaviour. And I, I do mourn who we were. I'm grateful to those people. I'm, I'm grateful to Bron and Bobby. I'm grateful, incredibly grateful to Darlene Chef and Mark and Russell Frago. You know, we, especially Cameron, Cameron Wade. They, they did, it was so hard on them uh, and it was thankless. I got all the, the notoriety and really it should be shared and I wish them well and I, I certainly wish Brian well. I, I hope that out of all of it, there's a wholeness for him and he'll hate me saying it. I'm sorry, Brian, but I'm not bitter, mate. I'm not bitter. I'm wounded, but I'm not bitter. I mean, these are consequences that I brought upon myself. They're my consequences. Can't blame anybody else for them. They're mine. Very humble, Jeff. Very, very humble indeed. And, you know, I mean... Okay, I'll have to be an arrogant asshole when I finish. <laughs> That's right. We'll stop recording then you can be an arrogant asshole. I don't believe that for a second. It, it's been a privilege talking to you today. And it's been a privilege talking to you, and I, I'm thrilled with what you're doing because you're giving a voice to the voiceless. These people need permission to grieve and mourn and and cry and and be whole again and not and realize it wasn't their fault. And this is not spirituality. This is muscular. This is corporate behaviour. These people are good people. They did their best. They were pawns in a machine that uh, they were expendable. So you know, if you're thanking us for the work we're doing, can we count you as patron saint of the podcast, then, Jeff? Oh gosh. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been saint. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call it I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist brought to you by Jeff Bullock. <laughs> whatever. Look, I'm more than happy to, you know, whatever I can do, you know, you know where I am, got my number. And I, look, I can talk the ears off anybody. No, Jeff, and we'd love to have you back on. I'm sure there is plenty more stories for you to tell and you'll probably come away from today and go, oh, shit, I wish I'd said that. Oh, I wish I'd said that. Well, I wish I didn't say that. <laughs> Not at all. I, I, I won't listen to it, I promise you. <laughs> I think you should listen to it and share it. I'm waiting to see are we going to get letters from Hillsong's lawyers even before we announce that this is going live, but we'll see what happens. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that, that's why on earth you'd want to be need to protect what you think is god driven god ordained if if you, if it's god ordained and god driven and if what you say is true uh, about jesus being resurrected on the third day having defeated and disarmed the devil well how can you say that this is an attack of the devil how if you're the body of christ how can you possibly be threatened by anything if if this is god ordained uh, why call in the lawyers let's let's have some truth let's have a good discussion and if I'm wrong, fabulous. Been wrong before. Well, thanks, Jeff. We really appreciate you being on the show. We we know that a lot of people are going to find a lot of meaning and resonate with what you've said as it you know aligns with their stories. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks, guys. Keep in touch. Thanks, Jeff. See you guys. Bye.